Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This episode was recorded at the Jaipur Lit Fest 2022, and it's called Panopticon, The Age of Surveillance. Shashi Tharoor, Madan B. Lokur, and Swati Chaturvedi in conversation with Mohit Satyanand. What a pleasure to be on this panel with uh, the all-time JLF favorite, Shashi Tharoor. Oh, thank you. Um, there you go. Um, with uh, Justice uh, Madan Lukur, who's been called the polymath judge of, uh, of India. Uh, with Swati Chaturvedi, who read, the, who produced this uh, very, um, insightful and insider view of I am a troll about the BJP's social activities. So the panopticon, what is the panopticon? The panopticon was this sort of construct of a circular multi-tired jail uh, with all the cells arranged around a central well and the jailers could sit in the middle and see from one spot what was happening in every cell. It was never built in real life but uh, the digital age has made it possible for people sitting in one place to survey what's happening, not just in their own jail or their own uh, nation, but literally across the world. And um, a few years ago, there was a book which took the um, intellectual world by storm, which was called Surveillance Capitalism by, um, by a New York intellectual, um, Zoshana, I forget the name. And, um, but we've moved on from there. And uh, today I think a bigger concern, at least in India, is the surveillance of the state. I might dare to call it surveillance fascism. Um, I'm of course inspired by Shashi's ability to coin new phrases. So uh, surveillance fascism. So I'm going to ask each of you to answer this question. Are we there yet? And if you had to compare the dangers of surveillance capitalism with surveillance fascism, which scares you more? Let me start with Swati, who's closest to me. Well, I think we're definitely there. In fact, uh, I think all of us have heard about Pegasus, the spyware, which is you know like a weapon of war, which was used against me and a lot of other journalists, about 10 other journalists in India. And it is a gross invasion of privacy because I don't think I'm anti-national. I'm just a journalist who does my job. And for the government to, you know, it is it costs 30 crores per person that they use the software on. And it is a gross invasion of privacy. It, you know, it, it monitors you 24 seven. And it was done to me for two years and I still don't know why, because our government has not given us any answers. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Mohit. Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, it's not that we are there now. I think we were there much earlier. Um, in 2012, uh, Indian Express had uh, raised a question under the Right to Information Act. And the response that they got was that every month, every month, um, they are intercepting between 7,500 and 9,000 uh, uh, phone calls 
right? Which means something like 200 or 250 per day. Okay, that's in 2012. In 2016, uh, the uh, minister uh, had answered a question in parliament in which he said that it's uh, 5,000 interceptions per month, okay, which comes to, I think, about 150, 175. So, and now, recently, in uh, 2019, a question was asked by some NGO saying that, uh, you know, how many interceptions are there in a month? And they said that uh, there's an exemption under Section 8 of the Right to Information Act. So we can't answer that question. So I think we were there in 2012, if not earlier. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't like to use, fling about words like fascism too easily because they, you know, they, they become a term of abuse rather than a useful term of analysis. But the surveillance state certainly has been growing and it's, it's surveillance statism, if you like, because uh, in many ways, it's the stranglehold of the bureaucracy on the appurtenances of surveillance that is a problem. I've seen a figure of a lack of interceptions a year, mother and brother, we're all, all in the same ballpark. Uh, and the, the strange thing in our country is that when these uh, rules were written, you have interception, and we keep claiming we have a robust review mechanism, but the people who decide the intervention, unlike in many democracies where the judiciary has to approve it, the judiciary has no role, interception is authorized by a committee of secretaries uh, usually the, the Home Secretary, the Law Secretary, and so on. And the review committee to which it must go by law, this is touted as the big fail-safe mechanism. The review committee is also a bunch of secretaries, a cabinet secretary at the head of them. So essentially what you've got is a bunch of government bureaucrats deciding for themselves. And I have spoken to some of them after their retirement. And they've all admitted there is absolutely not even the most cursory review possible. When you have to prove 100,000 names and often a long list of numbers, as one cabinet secretary said to me, there are more important things to do. So I just sign off and says, I've got to trust my colleagues. But that's precisely what's wrong with the surveillance system. And that's only telephone interceptions we're talking about. When you look at data interceptions, there you have a much more serious problem. I actually, well before this whole thing started, I introduced a private member's bill in parliament uh, that would regulate that would be a create a data protection um, uh, law and at the same time establish a data protection authority. And what's interesting is that when the government came up with its law, it has uh, a, a similar regulatory body envisaged. We even have the same name, but it's exactly the opposite of what I intended. It is once again a body of government bureaucrats appointed by the government accountable to themselves. Now, the entire point of having a regulatory authority is that it's got to be independent. You have judges on it, you have journalists on it, you have citizens uh, who are the common users of data, and let them opine when an application is justified or not, but not, uh, not in the eyes of our government. And I have on various occasions raised the same concerns about lots of government initiatives. During COVID, we had the Arogya Setu app, which briefly was compulsory, and they fortunately heeded our objections and took it off the compulsory list. But the Arogya Setu app was meant to trace your contacts to warn you when you were in proximity to a COVID-infected person. But obviously the same technology on your phone can also tell them when you're meeting an opposition leader, addressing an opposition, attending an opposition rally, et cetera, et cetera. It's a terribly intrusive and dangerous form of surveillance. I discovered that the Delhi police 
had arrested over 118 people during the CAA protests on the basis of facial recognition software that no one has ever authorized by any legislation. We have the DNA protection bill, uh, which entitles the government to essentially build up a massive nationwide data bank of all of our DNAs, again, without any data protection built in. So example after example like this raises very serious questions about whether indeed a surveillance state is emerging. Swati has something to say, I think. I just want to say that, you know, what you said about the committee is correct, but Pegasus is only sold to the governments across the world by Israel. And the list of people who were being spied on by Pegasus went to no commit the committee of secretaries, went to no secretary. In fact, it, was it is completely illegal. It is completely unauthorized. And all that the government has said in parliament is that, yes, you know, we used it. Now, why are you using no, they, haven't they, they haven't said that, Swati. They haven't said that. Ravi Shankar Prasad said that we use all these things. Well, he never said explicitly. But he says we do all use all. And the successor things. has yeah. denied it explicitly yeah. on the floor of the house. Therefore, they can't. If if they've denied its existence, there can't be a list of those who approved it, right? Exactly. There's yeah. no committee. It's totally right. illegal and unauthorized. Right. Right. Well, that's presuming. We're presuming that it existed. We're presuming that the Indian government paid for it. All of which presumptions I agree with. But it's not been stated on the floor of the house now. Nor has it been proven in the court of law. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll come to that, but I want to push back just a little bit and ask every government gathers data, uh, whether it's as basic as census data or um, uh, epidemiological data or whatever. At what point in time does data gathering become surveillance? Could you perhaps uh, talk about that? A little yeah, bit? you see, um, the, the whole purpose of um, uh, the data collection or data gathering, uh, you know, that, that is what is important. So uh, like Shashi said about uh, facial recognition, all right? Now you can have, uh, you know, CCTV cameras over here. Why are you having them over here? There, there has to be a reason for it. You know, um, the reason that is sometimes given in Delhi, for example, they have a very large number of uh, CCTV cameras all over the place. They say it is for the protection of citizens. All right. Now, once in a while, maybe once in a month or maybe twice in a month or something, some crime takes place and uh, the CCTV camera catches that picture. And that is used as a justification. See, you know, we had that CCTV camera, we had that facial recognition technology, and therefore we were able to catch hold of the person. So really, therefore, there is, uh, you know, a question of the intention behind it. Now, if you are using, uh, you know, if you're tapping phones, interceptions, you know, 150 per day without any application of mind, because I, I, I'm sure this cabinet secretary and all these secretaries, they don't have time to make 150 signatures, you know, and uh, find out why are they uh, making these signatures. The intention obviously is to gather data about those people. And that's when it becomes surveillance that you're gathering data because you want to gather data, not because you have some you know, good uh, intention in mind. That's what is troublesome. So when you're talking about DNA, whether you're talking about uh, you know, phone interceptions, when you're talking about uh, facial recognition, uh, the intention becomes important. And then the second stage is what are you going to do with that data? So if you've got uh, information about a person speaking to the opposition or going to attend an opposition rally or going to a protest or something, 
okay you know i know where you were right i i know what you did yesterday in the afternoon that becomes dangerous so the question then becomes you know this this uh, often difficult to define boundary between yeah. big brother and uh, caring brother and that's where you come to uh, the institutional mechanisms which need to be in place to prevent uh, misuse so would either shashi or madan like to expand a little bit on that well i mean there are uh, it's not so much caring as protection the protective brother because the big brother here has been given specific grounds uh, on the basis of which this surveillance can be done and they include you know national security public order the uh, imminent commission of a crime now uh, you know friendly relations with foreign countries which is an awful catch all etc cetera, etc cetera. and those are the grounds on which they are allowed to they all involve protecting the state that's what the the exceptions are for the problem is and i think mother will confirm this is that nowhere in any legislation or jurisprudence are these terms actually defined in a very precise way so national security from the point of view of these government bureaucrats is what they say it is they even tried on the pegasus issue that's what he mentioned to say to the supreme court we will not be filing a deposition because this is affects national security and fortunately the court had the gumption to say uh, we cannot give you a free pass every time you mention national security you better file something so there was at least some pushback and let's hope it continues but the fact is that this is the kind of challenge we have if you can justify pretty much anything on the basis of um, of these terms and you can then you essentially have an unrestricted license to tap anyone in this country a tap intercept capture their data eavesdrop on their phones whatever and say it was justified under this provision now worse still of course is the fact that once you've done all of this uh, what you do with it is not governed by any of the laws when swati mentioned uh, that these committees didn't meet on pegasus um, these committees were set up under the telegraph act of 1885 the it act of 2000 2000 is way before you know half the uh, companies encroaching on our data existed and the it rules of 2000 and whatever it was 5 or 9 uh which sort of try to regulate how exactly these things would, would apply but the fact is that there are a lot of things are happening that go way beyond uh for example the words of the law like interception if you can actually put a, a malware on somebody's phone and be able to clone their entire phone sitting in israel or wherever while this chap is using his phone in chatisgarh i mean is that something that um, is defined under the provisions of the law uh, what about the specific prohibitions Uh, that the law has written so a lot of updating a lot of clarification is required uh, will the government bite the bullet on i don't know but i can tell you that in the government's uh, prior uh, data protection bill what they're going to do is uh, in all the drafts we have seen they have written themselves an exception that is that all the protections in the law apply in principle to anybody who wants interceptor data except the government can give itself a free pass and rather large numbers of people in the government have the authority to give themselves a free pass if they want to intercept your data which of course raises the question madan which is where can an ideal supreme court step in to prevent this kind of what i would call malified legislation uh yeah okay i just uh, want to correct uh, shashi the government did not file an affidavit so oh, it didn't it didn't but it filed yeah. something that they're busy they studying right now yeah they they said something and then the supreme court appointed a committee but uh, the affidavit was not filed 
you know that that's where the problem is okay um, this is one case where uh, the government said we're not filing an affidavit there was another case in the delhi high court where um, the court said that please produce the records you know so that we can see what was the decision and why was it taken and the government said no we're not producing the records you know you do whatever you want to do so really i think at the end of the day the supreme court has to be tough and if the government does not you know uh, obey the orders of the court then draw an adverse inference you know we've asked you to file an affidavit you're not filing an affidavit all right then we will assume that what the other side has said is correct we've asked you to show us the records you don't want to show us the records fine we'll assume what the other side has said is correct so really it's 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 for the courts to you know stand up and say that listen when you're talking about you know civil rights when you're talking about personal liberty and so on you better obey the law you better obey what the constitution requires you to do so let's take that a little bit further yeah let's assume that a court actually stands up and says that and the government still refuses to what is the remedy no there is no <laughs> remedy um, you know uh, many years ago alexander hamilton had said in the uh, federalist papers that uh, the the judiciary does not have uh, the power of the purse or the power of the sword so really if the government says we're doing nothing about it you know all that the court can say is that well we haul you up for contempt but then to haul up the person for contempt there has to be somebody to arrest that person exactly okay and that person is somebody from the executive and if the executive says i am not going to arrest that person what are you going to do about it uh, can i ask a question what about the sealed envelope that the supreme court has <laughs> encouraged very recently in a lot of cases yep. you know everything in the sealed envelope is fine people don't need to know yeah. all yeah. you need is a sealed envelope yeah yeah that that according to me is a disaster it should not it it, it should definitely be discouraged and the court should not accept it at all I have no doubt about In it. In fact, yeah. slightly off topic, but we've just had a case in Kerala where a, a channel was not, uh, its license was not renewed after 10 years. And they said, well, what have we done? We've never been guilty of any violation of anything. Uh, and the Ministry of Information Broadcasting said, we are helpless. It is a home ministry requirement. So they went to court and the home ministry duly provided its evidence and sealed covers. So the judge said, fine, national security channel will stay off the air. I mean, there's something extraordinary about the national security uh, in a state which is not officially at war at any rate, can actually override every one of the basic democratic protections our system has. Yeah, can I just explain that a little bit? Please, please, Vandar. Yeah, you see, uh, the law is uh, under the Evidence Act that if something has to be kept away from a litigant, then the secretary in the ministry or the head of department has to file an affidavit saying that I have seen the record and in my view, it pertains to the affairs of the state and therefore the material should not be disclosed. All right. Then the court will see that affidavit, the court will see the record and it may agree or it may disagree with the uh, secretary and say that if it, well, we don't think it pertains to the affairs of uh, the state and therefore the material can be disclosed. Uh, this came up quite some time back in uh, 79 or so when there was a problem about the appointment of judges and uh, the secretary in the Ministry of Law filed an affidavit saying that 
this pertains to the affairs of state. The Supreme Court had to look at the record, uh, they had to look at the affidavit and they said, no, we don't think it's, it's, uh, it concerns the affairs of the state. And therefore they disclosed the material. Now, what is happening with this sealed cover, uh, which you had mentioned, uh, Swati, is that somebody takes a decision. Who that person is who takes a decision, nobody knows. And that person says, I'm going to put it in a sealed cover and give it to the Supreme Court. Whereas it is the obligation of the secretary in the department or the head of the department or the ministry to file an affidavit. You know, it's not that some guy can just get up and say that, listen, I think this is, uh, you know, something pertaining to national security or something. And therefore I'm putting it in a sealed cover. No, that, that, that's not his job. It's the job. Mother, the what's secretary. worse is that the accused has not shown the sealed cover. That's even worse. And the accused therefore cannot defend themselves. Yeah. It's very interesting. Other countries have national security yeah. dilemmas too. And the British national security practice is when there is an exemption sought for national security, it has to be uh, attested by a minister of the crown. Yeah. Yeah. And the evidence in the sealed cover is shared with the accused who can then defend himself in a tribunal by challenging that evidence. Yeah. Right now, you can have anything said. But would you say, would you say, Madan, that the ultimate onus, given the fact that there's a, there's a, a willing nexus, if you would, between the uh, uh, executive and the uh, party in power, would you say that the ultimate nexus then must be with the court? Well, I wouldn't say it's, uh, uh, you know, the nexus is with the court. No, 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 uh, that uh, the ultimate onus should be on the court. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Because it's for the court to decide whether it's a matter pertaining to the affairs of the state right. or say external affairs or something. But, you know, coming back to what Shashi said about uh, an accused, it can never, never be pertaining to affairs of the state. You know, I mean, here is a media house whose license is either going to be cancelled or not going to be renewed. Or you have cases, you know, pertaining to the Delhi riots, where a person is going to go to jail. It's not a matter pertaining to affairs of the state. So what we are seeing is, we are seeing that the court is not exercising its role, its uh, mandated role in terms of defending democracy. Yes, That's what we are seeing, yes, yeah, right? You, you, it's not willing to push that. back. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, well, you could say that, you know, the the provision of law that is there under the Evidence Act is not being followed, and that is unfortunate. I could extend that to a different domain, which is the court's refusal to entertain matters which are intrinsic to democracy. It's the same thing. It's an abrogation of responsibility. You can talk about, uh, you can talk about uh, electoral bonds, for example, or you can talk about Kashmir. So what... What I am seeing as a layperson, as a concerned uh, democratic citizen, is the Supreme Court abrogating its, its, its duties. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, abrogating its uh, duties is, uh, you know, a little strong. But uh, yes, it has to prioritize the work. Right. Okay, so Kashmir is something which is important. Uh, electoral bonds, very important. Right. You know, Kashmir, of course, is also very important. But you can't say that, uh, you know, uh, I'll deal with the electoral bonds after five years. That's what's happening. Make because in those five years, there'll be about 10 or 15 elections. Exactly. So you have to decide it quickly. Right. You know? So as a check, as a check to the executive, it's not working, right? Yeah. In, in, yeah. in critical matters. So use whatever word you want. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not... Uh, but there, there is some kind of abandonment of a sense of priority in what is important to the state. Yeah. So I want to come to another check which is within the parliament, 
and I'm going to come to Pegasus. And Shashi chairs a committee on, uh, uh, on information. And uh, there was to be a sitting in regard to Pegasus. And uh, from what I heard, Shashi, in your conversation in which you outed the dark name of our friend, Poranjoy uh, Guha Thakurta, I'll call him by his full name, um, that we had the most extraordinary uh, circumstance where three of the secretaries who were summoned by the parliamentary committee, which you headed, didn't show up. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary in that uh, they'd all been convened two weeks earlier. And between an hour before the meeting and 15 minutes before the meeting, each of them sent uh, very sort of similarly worded fax messages regretting their inability to attend because of pressing commitments. Now, there is a procedure whereby a senior government official, for good reason, can seek, can seek to be excused, but the chairman has to excuse them and decide whether an alternative person may replace them. I had not done so, I had not excused them, and I had insisted they come, given that they had been uh, confirmed this was to be on their program for the last two weeks. When they nonetheless didn't show up, I did protest to the speaker who assured me that first that he would summon them and read them the riot act and secondly that he had done so. In practice, of course, that absolutely changes nothing. But for good measure, the committee has, at least in theory, 31 members. I say in theory because I've never seen all 31 in the room. Uh, the highest we've ever had, I think, is 21 or 22 uh, uh, for a, a similarly controversial issue. Otherwise, the average regular attendance is very much in the low two digits. Uh, and that's usually the case in many committees. The ones who really care about the issue, done their homework, they're the ones who come and participate. In this case, 17 people showed up. And because all parliamentary committees reflect the political balance uh, in the House, a majority that came, a good majority, but 10 of them were BJP members. Um, and the quorum, for the committee is 10. So the 10 members were present and refused to sign the attendance register. So that just in case I was able to strong arm the secretaries into coming, they would then say there is no quorum and a discussion couldn't take place. So it was a double whammy, as you can imagine. Um, I checked whether, because in the, in, in the house itself, a speaker can establish the presence of a quorum by counting heads. I said, I can count heads, can't I? But the secretary told me I could not, that uh, in committees, only a signature on the attendance register counts as presence. So they were there, they were quite disruptive. They were trying to shout down the opposition MPs who wanted the meeting to proceed. Because we said, if the secretaries don't come, we'll still discuss the issue. But they did not allow that particular event to take place. And so it was very clear that um, the oversight mechanisms, and some of you may be aware that even before this unsavory episode, when Pegasus first erupted in the media, and I was asked by the press, I immediately said that though I'm the chairman of the committee, and ideally the democracy parliamentary oversight should get to the bottom of this, uh, knowing the system as well as I do, I would urge that this matter be taken to the judiciary. I would urge victims uh, of this uh, software to go to the courts because they're likely to get more redress. And I gave an example, the court would have a power, for example, to summon a recalcitrant government uh, official, uh, which I, I, you know, the extent of my powers are the feeble. The court could, for example, ask for a, a, an infected phone and send it off for forensic analysis, 
which I can't do, my committee can't do, and so on. So, so I Shashi, if you really want a, a serious inquiry, the courts are the best. Place. So Shashi, that raises several issues. The first is just as the courts are, in a sense, to an extent, not willing to do their duty. Now you have a different situation where another check and balance, which is a parliamentary committee, are not being allowed to do their duty. We'll come to what happened in terms of the Pegasus going to a court of law and commission of inquiry and so on. But since we're talking specifically now about Pegasus, can you tell us briefly, Swati, about how you realized that your phone was infected and some thoughts about why you um, well, why? Because I'm a journalist and that is not a good thing to be in uh, New India. I mean, uh, there are journalists who are in jail for doing a story they haven't done. You know, they're, they're thinking of doing a story. So the government jails them. This happened in UP. We also have comedians going to jail for a joke they didn't tell. So I think the joke is really at this point on us. I found out about Pegasus because one of my sources met me in a place, told me to keep my phone away, and then told me that, you know, this is what is going on. And you should be very careful because this is malware to the extent where 24 into 7, your camera is a weapon which they can see you, what you say, where you are, what you're doing from the, you know, from the bedroom to the bathroom, everywhere. It is, it is horrendous invasion of privacy. But, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I found out because Forbidden Stories was working on a story of, on Pegasus and they took my phone, they got in touch saying, you're on this list and they put it through a forensic audit where they saw that, you know, my phone had this malware on it. And uh, interestingly in Pegasus, the US says that Pegasus cannot be used on any US citizen. So, I mean, we as Indians need to know that why is our government, a government we elected as citizens, you know, using Pegasus and opposition politicians, journalists, and basically anybody they think is, uh, you know, not on board with uh, New India. So Swati, invasion of privacy is obviously not something that I would like to condone, but the question, I'm sure that's not what they intend, right? They, there must be a purpose. What do you think that purpose is? Obviously to find out what a journalist who they think is inconvenient, which is not my journalism has not changed in 20 years. I'm doing exactly what I used to, I've always done. But the, this government in particular does not like journalists. They like what I call Panna Pramukhs, you know, who cheerlead them on. So any kind of journalism, you know, they think that real journalism in, is injurious to their health, which is why you have these joke television channels who compete every day in telling you how wonderful and brilliant and as a Supreme Court judge called him, what a versatile genius our prime minister is. <laughs> not me. No, no, definitely not, Madan. Don't look at my don't, don't look at Madan. You know, uh, in, in one session yesterday, Pavan Varma said something which is that uh, one of the worst things that you can have is a human being or a body which think that they have the monopoly over the truth. And uh, I was thinking about this last night in the context of Pegasus. I'm thinking of two people I know whose phones were probably infected. One is Paranjoy and the other is Sushant Singh. And I was thinking, you know, Sushant Singh is breaking one truth repeatedly, which is that all is well at our border. And that becomes an incentive to scare him, to find things that they can use against him. And Paranjoy is telling the inconvenient truth that this is not a government that is pro-markets, it's pro-businessmen, and it's pro a particular kind of businessman investigating the Ambani's and the Adani's. 
And uh, so there's a specific reason to tackle specific uh, journalists, which is why I was asking you, Swati, why you think that this is uh, being used against you in particular. Was it because I'm a troll? Um, I'm a troll. It happened certainly after I'm a troll, but since this government's come in, I've done a lot of stories in The Wire, in NDTV, which they really clearly didn't like. And you know, the reason any government wants to keep tabs on a journalist is to know their sources, to terrify the journalist, to terrify the sources and say, look, we know you're leaking to her and we're going to get you into trouble. So for me, my sources are sacred. And you know, this attack on anyone who's willing to speak to a journalist, I, mean, I would go to jail for my sources, you know? So for, the, for, for them to do this is to just terrify people and not speaking to me. And when they don't speak to me, I don't speak the inconvenient truth. Um. I'm glad you don't see this as fascism yet, Shashi. I see very strong streaks of it there. Uh, Madan, I want to ask you, uh, I know that certain matters are subjudice and you wouldn't like to uh, uh, talk about them, but I find it very interesting, firstly, that uh, the West Bengal government should decide to take up the Pegasus issue when it's clearly a national issue. So can you and perhaps Shashi also speak to what that meant? Uh, well, really, I can't speak uh, for the West Bengal government. Uh, all, all that I can say is that uh, I was approached by the government uh, to head a commission of inquiry. And uh, they you know, uh, told me what the terms of reference of that uh, commission of inquiry would be. And uh, so I said, yes, you know, but uh, whether there was any politics behind it or there was no politics behind it, I have absolutely no idea. Um, so we, uh, well, after the notification came, we, you know, got down to business because we had to draft the rules of procedure and so on and so forth. And um, then, uh, you know, at some point of time, the Pegasus issue reached the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, a, a, a submission was made on behalf of the West Bengal government because one of the um, uh, submissions that was made to the Supreme Court was that the notification setting up the commission of inquiry is unconstitutional. The West Bengal government does not have the power to issue that notification. So on behalf of the uh, West Bengal government, Dr. Abhishek uh, Manu Singhvi uh, said that, all right, you know, we will request the commission not to proceed with the inquiry. So we did not proceed with the inquiry because the Supreme Court had said that, listen, we are looking into the matter. So why should uh, a commission of inquiry look into it also? So we respected what uh, Dr. Singhvi said uh, in the light of what the Supreme Court had said. And uh, later on, the Supreme Court, um, you know, disposed of an application for interim relief. And they did not mention anything about uh, the commission of inquiry. So we discussed the matter and uh, we assumed that because the Supreme Court has not given any stay, it had not given a stay even earlier. It had not given any stay, nor did it say anything about the Commission of Inquiry. We thought that, you know, we could go ahead with the inquiry because it's time bound, you know, and um, there was no stay. So we proceeded uh, to record evidence, uh, including that of uh, Paranjoy, as you mentioned. And um, then it was brought to the notice of the Supreme Court that, well, you know, the commission is going ahead with its task. So then the Supreme Court gave a stay. Uh, that was, I think, around 6th or 7th of December, something like that. 
So since then, we haven't done any work. And so that. as far as Pegasus is concerned and the affected uh, journalists and others, kindly wait, you are in the queue. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, but the Supreme Court did appoint a committee of a retired judge, uh, mm -hmm. Justice Ravindran, uh, who has given an interim report. Uh, you know, the committee was supposed to give it within eight weeks. The order passed by the Supreme Court was, I think, around 28th of uh, October. And uh, they were supposed to give it within eight weeks, which meant uh, by the end of December. And maybe I think about two or three weeks ago, they gave uh, some kind of an interim report, but no final report has been given. Now, what are the contents of that interim report? We don't know because that's in a you know sealed cover. So we have about nine minutes left and I'm going to throw the uh, floor open to questions. But before I do, I want each of you to uh, uh, say a few words on the fact that it seems that parliamentary committees are not being allowed to do their job. The Supreme Court, whatever gentle words you want to do, is quite complicit in letting things slide. So what, are the, what is the nature of recourse for a democracy and a people who do not want to be surveilled? Shashi. Well, I wouldn't say parliamentary committees are not being allowed to do their job, but in this particular instance, clearly not. In fact, Pegasus first surfaced as an issue in 2019 when uh, the Toronto Citizens Lab contacted a number of Indian activists, particularly those active in the tribal belt in Central India, to tell them their phones have been infected through a loophole in WhatsApp. A call to WhatsApp, you click on it, you come through. So um, the activists wrote to me and I invited them. And we went through an extraordinary, another extraordinary event. We had a lot of unprecedented developments in this committee, but uh, uh, where the uh, BJP majority sought to um, prevent discussion by using a provision that had not been resorted to ever before, of actually calling a vote on the subject. Uh, fortunately, two people can read the rules. So I discovered that if I could manage a tie in the vote, I have a second and casting vote as chairman. And uh, so I was able to persuade a couple of BJP allied parties uh, who have subsequently been moved off the committee that a discussion was a good thing and they voted for a discussion. Uh, the, the, there was a logjam and I then proceeded to cast my vote. But the discussion, in fact, uh, gave the affected activists an opportunity to air their grievances and concerns. But we got no joy out of the officials yeah. uh, who essentially have been taking the so last back to the question. But they have no information. Yeah. So, I mean, the committee can do its work, but there are various methods by which the effectiveness of that work can be constrained. Now, on the question of, uh, of whether the courts uh, can help. I, I still think we have not fully exploited the potential of the court to get involved in some of these matters. In other democracies, courts have actually issued rulings about what national security means and where personal liberty begins. And certainly I'm sure that in a good court action, uh, citing what has been said by judges in the US and the UK and elsewhere is admissible in our courts. And I think can lead to an interesting, um, we would put our judiciary on a spot and deciding otherwise, especially after the Puttaswami judgment where So if there are some very clear yardsticks uh, that will be required to be met before privacy is breached, then many of these uh, issues can probably be brought before the court. So I, I'm sorry to say this as an elected MP, that I too place more faith in the potential uh, involvement of the judiciary in resolving this than I would in parliamentary institutions. And don't forget, the big flaw in the parliamentary system, which I've been excoriating for 25 years, is that the executive is the legislature too. 
that you're, you elect the legislature to form the executive. Once the legislature has got a majority that is owned by the executive, it no longer functions. In and the, the whip. And the whip. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Madan? Yeah, well. So he's placing the faith in the court. And you? Yeah, I, 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 I do place the faith in the court. Uh, but I believe that the court should be more proactive, right? And uh, it should stand up. Okay. Which it's not, which is why the question. Yeah, yeah. So th therefore the court has to be more proactive and uh, it, it, it must stand up. It's, it's not standing up enough, you know, if I may put it like that. Um, but it should stand up. And, Swati? Yeah. Um, support really noisy journalists and hear all of us here. I think we right know. on. Support <laughs> noisy journalists. Yeah. We already know that we are being surveyed. How many of you use WhatsApp for all your business or other calls? I mean... Yeah, so all of us know, we know the truth. You know, we should, we should actually, as citizens in a democracy, hold our government accountable that, you know, they have no business, uh, you know, surveilling, inv doing invasive surveillance of Indians who may have a different view. You know, we all have a right to our views. We are a democracy and we need to fight for it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.